Hey there, deadly listeners. Welcome to the Indigenous Podcast, a show that helps you get a better understanding of Indigenous entrepreneurship or Western entrepreneurship and answer all your related questions to Indigenous entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Steel, Dean Foley, Indigenous entrepreneur with over five years' experience in the field, in the trenches. In today's episode, we hear from Cato about the wealth in First Nations, which he spoke about at the First Nations Economic Forum. Wait, what I. Welcome and hello. My name is Kato Muir, and in this series, I want to explore the concept of wealth in First Nations. You may recall that Adam Smith, a early European economic philosopher or an economist, wrote a book called Wealth of Nations. And to me, that book seemed to underwrite the European expansion, imperialistic expansion and colonization of all the new worlds. Not only did it um, support the notions of uh, extractivism, extracting resources, uh, commandeering resources, uh, aligning human capital, all of those sort of um, aspects of European incursions and extractions of wealth from uh, the places that they visited. It operated in some way, and this is my view of it, it operated in some way as a, as a textbook. And today you see the the way in which our, the economy of our world is situated, much of the wealth is today held within Europe or former European colonies where the settlers refused to leave. And the three prominent uh, English-speaking countries, of course, would be Australia, where I come from, the United States and Canada. But of course you have other places in South America, for instance, with uh, the Brazilian and Spanish legacies. And in a lot of these um, places, the wealth of those places is held and controlled largely by the inheritors of that previous and in some cases ongoing uh, colonial incursions. So in this series, I want to explore the idea of wealth in First Nations because I come from a part of Australia where my grandparents and my mother continued to live traditional nomadic existence in the hunter-gatherer economy uh, right up until they came in contact with uh, Europeans and settled in the frontier settlements. That's in, in my generation. It's uh, my grandparents and my parents' generations. I was born in 1970, uh, have lived and grown up in the part of the 
of Western Australia known as the Goldfields region, in which Europeans came here in the 1890s and proceeded to extract gold and other mineral resources, which they continue to do into the present. And in my lifetime, I've come from that semi-nomadic cultural background. Uh, my father is a sixth generation white Australian, but he left home as a young man and proceeded to live with Aboriginal people uh, throughout his entire life. He's still with us, fortunately, at, uh, in the year 2020 um, at 92, I think he is this year. Um, but he proceeded to live with Aboriginal people in that era of the decline of the hunter-gatherer way of life and economies and the transition of Aboriginal people into agrarianism uh, in the form of working on pastoral leases. So the inheritance I have from my parents is uh, a dual inheritance, one of a understanding and connection with my European ancestry, but also an understanding and connection with my Aboriginal ancestry. And fortunately for me, my father made the choice at his early age to engage and participate with Aboriginal people within the cultural domain. And therefore I come from that background of having been exposed to the full extent of uh, my traditional cultural inheritance, but also having a good sound and strong understanding of the European um, values, uh, history, and my work to date, uh, my life work, has really been around campaigning for the repatriation, restitution, and remediation of the dispossession of Aboriginal people, uh, having our land taken away, having our way of life uh, significantly changed, and resulting in a lot of my family members within the extended family kinship networks uh, being reduced to poverty. And I can't talk myself. I mean, uh, I'm not uh, exactly uh, wealthy as such, but uh, that's what I want to explore because in this, uh, you know, 25, nearly 30 years campaign that I've uh, participated in myself, we have managed to get significant portions of land return to our communal native title ownership in the form of uh, native title determinations. Currently, the two that I'm most actively in is the Mandaredina, which is in the desert homelands. And that part of the world, we have 24,000 square kilometers of exclusive possession land. I think that's about 240 million hectares. Um, so in some respects, we're looking, sitting here in Australia, I, along with other family members, 
are essentially one of the largest landholders in Australia. Uh, there are some other areas that we have uh, currently still campaigning and going through the legal court processes to secure recognition and determinations. Uh, the Wadada Native Title Claim, uh, Bayari, and there's another one called Dalo, and the one that I spent most of my time on uh, and continue to do so is a determination known as Jiwal. And Jiwal and Mandaredi are probably the two examples of um, this dis disjuncture between land holding wealth and the reality of poverty. I will go into more discussions of that in the future, but uh, to for the purposes of this particular presentation, I think what I want to end up with is this understanding of wealth in First Nations, our access to an extensive land holding, yet the impediments, there are significant impediments that prevent Aboriginal people from effectively mobilising our resources. And that's where the guidance of uh, Adam Smith and the wealth in, for, wealth in nations, wealth of nations, may support um, strategies that will allow uh, myself and other Aboriginal people in, West, in, in Australia and hopefully Indigenous peoples around the world to rebalance this injustice. The economic marginalisation and the um, control of access to economic opportunities is really the big, single biggest impact on First Nations and Indigenous peoples worldwide. So this discussion that I'm commencing with this initial video and podcast is the first in a series in which I will explore the history of how we end up in this economic marginalization, the current situation of uh, acquiring and across Australia in particular, um, securing ownership, management and control of effectively 90% of Australia is where First Nations, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people fit today. Yet, if you align our situation with the Sustainable Development Goals of the United Nations and the Australian version known as the Closing the Gap Targets, we still remain in a severely disadvantaged position. So some of those um, impediments are first and foremost, and this is the thing that I think uh, my fellows and compatriots as Indigenous people, we need to secure the confidence internally. 
um, to educate ourselves and to free ourselves from the oppression of the mind, uh, the oppression of the spirit that is part of the strategies of colonization and dispossession. So that's the first impediment. The second impediment is uh, understanding the markets and the economy. And this is the, the interesting thing because it's all about language, economic language versus our understandings. And part of the freedom of the oppression is recognizing that first Australians, we have and we continue to hold an extensive trade network right across Australia that was also international uh, in the exchanges of the northern uh, peoples, the northern tribes. They traded with in people from Indonesia, which is now part of Indonesia. They also traded with people from Papua New Guinea. Um, and so there was that ongoing international exposure and these extensive trade networks that operate throughout Australia uh, that in some cases are now sleeping because of the oppression of uh, the settler society. But these are the tools that we already have at our disposal to be able to reactivate an economic model and an economic story. The other fascinating thing which I will have an episode on is our internal structures, our kinship structures, our um, reciprocity and distribution structures, which are cultural values and cultural paradigms. But in my culture, uh, from the desert, we have this system called Ngabidiga or Ngabidi. Ngabidi, Ngabidi, some people call it Ngabidiga is in my Ngalia language. And this is one of those very massive uh, cultural constructs. Uh, it extends from revenge, uh, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, right through to economic forms of reciprocity and exchange. Uh, Nabidi is a system of trading, but it's also importantly, it's a system of distribution so that those in need are never left wanting. Um, and that's an important value that uh, capitalist models don't necessarily subscribe to. Socialism does, but it misses out on uh, other parameters. But within a traditional culturally grounded first Australian model, we do have systems of uh, distribution and exchange that support uh, the livelihood and sustenance of all our members. Now, and then into the reality, um, I've spent the last uh, 12 months working with uh, the Responsible Investors uh, Network in Australia around um, them focusing on the impacts of financial investments in uh, mining companies and how those impact on uh, traditional Aboriginal people, uh, cultural lands, uh, heritage sites, environmental sites, etc. Which is all very well, but 
one of the biggest challenges we as First Nations people in Australia suffer is access to capital. And it seems to me that uh, for all the good will and good uh, words of the responsible investors networks and the banks and the superannuation funds in Australia, very few, if any of those organisations actually invest capital in First Nations businesses. So therein lies one of the quandaries. Uh, there are institutional barriers that continue to separate and oppress us from accessing uh, capital and accessing resources. Then, of course, the uh, fundamentals around setting up and running businesses, but also just the actual, um, this is about wealth, wealth in First Nations. And business is just simply one of the mechanisms by which you acquire or create a process of generating wealth. And what we really need to do is understand what wealth is. Um, as I say, with the native title lands that I have um, an ownership or interest in, I would be in my individual capacity, but also collectively with uh, the fellows in my native title uh, community, my, my people, we are probably the largest landholders in Australia and potentially some of the largest landholders in the world. Yet we continue to remain in poverty. So those are the questions. And of course, my um, Gen X uh, interests are in uh, technology, um, cryptocurrencies, uh, fintech, uh, as being informed from a perspective as an activist. I've been campaigning for social justice, uh, economic justice, uh, for First Nations people in Australia for many years. And it's important that we understand and access and use the tools, the resources and the capital at our disposal. So this is the introductory video to this idea of uh, wealth in First Nations. I trust um, it may generate some ideas. Uh, please do subscribe to my channel. Um, leave comments, constructive comments. I'm not interested in rubbish, but uh, what I'm interested in is creating a uh, a conversation around ideas, particularly focused on bringing balance back to the situation of First Nations peoples in Australia and in other parts of the world as a consequence of being um, marginalised, oppressed and denied opportunities. So with that note, and I'll look forward to hearing from you. So come to wealthinfirstnations.com. You can find me on Twitter at uh, Wealth in First Nations or at Cato Muir. I'm on LinkedIn and also uh, catomuir.com.au as uh, some of my sites. And I have another podcast series, which is called My Culture Story. 
Chats, which you can find on most uh, podcast um, venues, but also at myculturestory.com.au. Bye, Lana. Ngon